0: Hello, literature lovers, including members of my family. (laughs) Literature lovers, um, dragooned. Um, Okay, so plot. I'm going to start the lecture in the only possible way, with a warning. A warning and an interesting phrase, which um, we hear all the time, but which actually uh, was only invented in the 1980s. Spoiler alert. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary. Noun. In a review or especially online discussion of a film, television, series, etc., an intervention used to warn a reader that an important detail of a story is about to be divulged or alluded to. A forewarning of a plot spoiler. Frequently humorous or ironic, especially in wider use. First recorded use, 1982 from a Usenet news group online. Spoiler alert, I think we're referring here to Star Trek II, the uh, movie, regarding Spock's parting gesture to McCoy. It wouldn't surprise me if, ha- if that's how they bring him back. I have seen Star Trek II, but I can't quite untangle the, splot- the plot speculation that they're referring to. First ever use of spoiler alert and the only way to start this lecture because, spoiler alert, I'm going to be giving away a lot of plots. I'm sorry. That's the only way to do it. And indeed, I'm going to be suggesting in the course of this lecture that only certain novels really have plots. And you could say that the novels that have plots, which are the ones I'm going to be talking about, are the ones where, if you discuss the novel, you need to give a spoiler alert. I don't think you have to give a spoiler alert if you discuss any aspect whatsoever of A La Recherche du temps perdu, but if you are talking about a Dickens novel, and that's where we're going to go in the end... Uh, at least a Dickens novel after, about about a third of the way through his career, then you can't say anything really important about it without a spoiler alert. The phrase spoiler alert is slightly more recent, but only slightly than the noun spoiler, which came from America, first recorded use, 1971. Colloquial, originally US, a description of a significant plot point or other aspect of a movie, book, etc., which is previously known, may spoil a person's first experience of the work. I think, note, please, that phrase, first experience of the work, because we're going to be thinking a bit about what it might be like to read a book for the first time, but then after that for the second or third time. Um, Or perhaps to read a book having, unfortunately, already seen the inadequate television dramatisation of it. Um, especially in written context, warning the reader of an impending revelation of this type. First recorded use in the OED 1971, DC Kenyan National Lampoon, a uh, a comic uh, uh, American magazine. On the following pages, the National Lampoon presents as a public service a selection of spoilers and you can probably tell from the inverted comments around spoilers, they're treating this as though it's a rather unusual or new word. Guaranteed to reduce the risk of unsettling and possibly dangerous suspense. And then they give an example. Psycho. The movie's multiple murders are committed by Anthony Perkins, disguised as his long-dead mother, etc. They would be other such uh, spoilers. Um, Of course, it's... It's the case that many people now, if they see the film Psycho, might already know that, but a bit of a disappointment for Hitchcock if the first people going to see the film had already been given that spoiler. film is pointless after that. Um, And I'm going to be giving quite a few spoilers, I'm afraid. Wilkie Collins, whom I'm going to be talking about a bit, the Victorian novelist, the pioneer of what we have since come to call thrillers, was so concerned at the prospect of spoilers, as we now call them, from clumsy reviewers, that he attached a plea to the front of his bestseller, The Woman in White, which was published first published in book form in 1860, and he addressed the critics and he said this, in the event of this book being reviewed, I venture to ask whether it is possible to praise the writer or to blame him without opening the proceedings by telling his story at second hand. If he tells the story at all in any way whatever is he doing a service to the reader by destroying beforehand two main elements in the attraction of all stories the interest of curiosity and the excitement of suspense. And Collins said this even though the novel, The Woman in White, had uh, actually already appeared in serial form in the weekly periodical All the Year Round, which was edited and partly owned by his friend Charles Dickens. Um, And you'll know the convention, I'm sure all of you now, which I think is a bit better established than Collins feared it was in the 1860s, that when reviewers... Review novels, um, especially when they review plot heavy novels, when they review detective novels or thrillers, crime stories, that they mustn't talk about the plot. They mustn't tell you anything, give you anything away about the plot. And indeed, that may be one of the reasons I think why plot is one of the aspects of novels least often talked about by critics. This whole lecture, as I said, needs, I'm afraid, a general spoiler alert. In order to talk about these plots, I'm going to have to give away some plots, so you'll have to forgive me. And um, Claire, my friend from Gresham College, told me at the beginning of the lecture how pleased she was that I was going to be talking a bit later about the mystery of Edwin Drood, Dickens' last novel, because it was the only Dickens novel she hadn't yet read. She's been saving it up, and I'm about to destroy it for her. I'm terribly sorry. But actually not destroy it, because, well, stick around and you'll see why. Um, What is a plot? Um, If not all novels have plots, how do we tell which ones do? Well, I think we know when we're uh, alerted to the signs of of a plot, when we're made to see them by the novelist. I'm going to look at three examples of uh, novels where We know there's a plot going on because we, as skilled novel readers, have learned to recognise the signals of them. This is one example. This is from a favourite novel of mine uh, with a beautiful and intricate plot, uh, John le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And what's happening here is that the protagonist... The mole hunter, George Smiley, has gone to Somerset to question the former spy, Jim Prido, who is now a master at a benighted country prep school. And they talk, and Jim recalls a disastrous mission to Czechoslovakia, where he was sent by the head of the secret service, the head of the circus, Control, And the Control said, before he went, taught him a code because the purpose of his mission was to identify the uh, senior member of British intelligence who is, in fact, a Soviet mole. And there's only a small number of possible culprits and Control gives him this code for who they might be. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, that rhyme that you all know, I'm sure. Priddow's captured and interrogated under torture and, of course, gives away the fact that he knows his code to uh, uh, his torturers. And then after he eventually is returned to England on a sort of spy swap, he gets visited by his fellow spook, Toby Esterhazy, one of the possible suspects, who gives him a load of cash and tells him to forget everything about his mission. I could forget Tinker, Taylor and the whole damn game, moles, everything. I could forget it, right? Forget it. Just behave as if it had never happened, he was shouting. And that's what I've been doing, obeying orders and forgetting. The night landscape seemed to smiley suddenly innocent, It was like a great canvas on which nothing bad or cruel had ever been painted. Side by side, they stared down the valley over the clusters of light to a tor raised against the horizon. A single tower stood at its top, and for a moment it marked for Smiley the end of the journey. Yes, he said, I did a bit of forgetting too. So Toby actually mentioned Tinker Taylor to you. However, did he get hold of that story? Unless the interruption is Le Carre's, not mine. And the italic, that story, is also Le Carre's, not mine. You're supposed to have your antennae twitch here, aren't you? And you might remember the line, it's quite a big moment um, in its quiet way. In the uh, when it's said by Alec Guinness in the part of George Smiley in the 1979 BBC dramatisation of the novel, although he doesn't say it in slightly different words. That last line is a plot hook. However, did he know that? Of course, it's also a red herring. Um, if uh, I may mix my metaphors a bit... Because um, what it does lead to is not that Toby Esterhazy must be the mole. No. Spoiler alert, he's not the mole. Um, if you want to know what it leads to, go online and there are a whole load of John le Carré fans Um, who will unravel in minute detail what every little plot hook, including this one, actually means if you're clever enough, as George Smiley is, to work out what it shows. And in a way, of course, the pleasure of Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spies, to become as clever as George Smiley. The reader of a John le Carré novel is expected to be clue-attentive, And every little detail is likely to matter. Um, And in an earlier lecture in this series, I talked about how uh, in other kinds of novels, uh, from Daniel Defoe to Carlo Vinausgaard, details, circumstantial details, little matters of fact are there to make the world credible, to make you believe in a story. In a plot-heavy novel... Observe detail is there to not to excite your belief, but to excite your curiosity. And where do we go? Where do we have to go for a writer who does that, but Agatha Christie. Um, a writer who is not very interested in terms of character and description and theme and all the things that you might. Uh, you might want to write an essay about if you're an A-level student or an undergraduate. But she's really interested, interesting narratively, I think. And this is from uh, 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 a 1940 novel, so mid-period, Christie. One, to Buckle My Shoe. And um, we're outside... It's a Poirot novel. We're outside a Harley Street dentist in the first chapter of the novel... Each chapter of the novel is, uh, they're not numbered, but they're headed by lines from this rhyme. And you might think, oh, there's another, this funny thing, these novels, which are, which are uh, entitled after childish rhymes. Um, we might think about why that might be. Tinker, Taylor, One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. There's quite a few other Agatha Christie novels, actually. Hickory Dickory, um, Pocketful of Rye, which are also named after sort of chi- children's rhymes. Anyway, it's, uh, here we are, and here's what happens. A taxi had just drawn up before the house, and a foot was protruding from it. Poirot surveyed the foot with gallant interest. A neat ankle, quite a good quality stocking, not a bad foot, but he didn't like the shoe, a brand-new patent leather shoe with a large gleaming buckle. He shook his head, not sheep. Very provincial. The lady got out of the taxi, but in doing so, she caught her other foot in the door and the buckle was wrenched off. It fell tinkling onto the pavement. Gallantly, Poirot sprang forward and picked it up, restoring it with a bow. Um, Now, I think even if you're reading an Agatha Christie novel for the first time, you're probably thinking what's this about what significance does this have, have. if you are what i shall call a practiced christie semiologist you'll be able to get a lot out of this okay so even poirot's sort of rather supercilious and more than borderline sexist uh, 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 judgments about the person what kind of woman she is will turn out to be important. What kind of impression she is giving will turn out to be important. But also the accident that happens to her. Um, uh, Christie novels, of course, are full of things which are staged or performed. People dressing up and pretending to do things to mislead us and to mislead eventually the detective. But it looks pretty likely that she couldn't possibly fake this accident, wrenching off the buckle, and indeed she doesn't, and indeed shoes and buckles turn out to be quite important to the solution of what is eventually a complicated triple murder. Um, Spoiler alert, an important rich man in order to conceal his bigamy, we're back with Wilkie Collins actually again, really bigamy, the great secret to be concealed in most... Uh, uh, sensational Victorian novels. But anyway, to conceal his bigamy, Kills has to plan the murder of his blackmailer. In order to do that, he has to murder the blackmailer's dentist in order to impersonate the dentist. And therefore, he also has to murder somebody else who's due to visit the dentist that day, collateral damage, I'm afraid, um, in order that one of his bigamously married wives can impersonate the person that's with the buckle and the shoe. And, well, that's just a brief resume of what's going on. You can't, I think, however clever, infer that from this little bit. But you can infer that something is happening. And, of course, uh, even though... No murders yet actually being committed. Um, and you can do it perhaps also from the fact that the title of oh, sorry, the title of the novel, "One to Buckle My Shoe," might ring alarm bells with you when you see that buckle being picked up by Poirot, who has himself, of course, just visited the dentist. So um, here are all the kind of signals to a certain kind of reader that there is something going on beneath the surface of events and accidents. Novels shaped by their plots have to let you at least have a chance to detect those plots. If not to detect what's going on, to know that something is. There's a shape to events Beneath the Surface. Uh, Here is my third of my examples, after Le Carre and Christie. Here we're back with Wilkie Collins. The man who, I think, invented so many of the conventions that thriller writers still follow, not just thriller, thriller novelists, but thriller writers for the television too. And this is, from that novel I've already mentioned, The Woman in White, and... It's a long novel and this is sort of right in the middle of it. And it's the very moment when the reader might detect the plot taking shape. Of course, the plot has already taken shape in Collins' mind and we've had many instalments before we get to this stage. But this is the key moment when the reader should be able to sense what's going on. All It has to be said... First time I read the novel, I didn't get this bit. And I think it's very unlikely that most first-time readers would do. What's happening is that Sir Percival Glyde, who is a, a moustache-twirling um, Victorian baddie, and he's an aristocrat, but he's lost all his money for his gambling. He needs money. He's married the beautiful and virtuous, naive Laura Fairley, in order to try and get her money. But she won't sign it over to him. So he's got her, but he hasn't got her cash. So what does he do? And this is a conversation overheard by Laura's uh, much more resourceful half-sister, Marion Halcombe, um, who's actually, it's nighttime, she's on a terrace, it's all very exciting, and not on a terrace, on a, on a, on a balustrade above the two men who are talking and smoking their cigars. And one is Sir Percival. And the other is Sir Percival's uh, uh, crony, his accomplice, the brilliant, villainous Italian, soi on aristocrat, Count Fosco and I'll be returning to him in a future lecture on villains, for he is a prized specimen of such. Um, and they're discussing a distracted young woman who has been turning up in, 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 uh, round about where they are in this isolated house in Surrey called Anne Catherick. Um, I must know, says Count Fosco, I must know how to recognise our invisible Anne. You won't mind if I channel Count Fosco a bit. (laughs) What is she like? Like? Come, I'll tell you in two words. She's a sickly likeness of my wife. The chair creaked and the pillar shook once more. The Count was on his feet again, this time in astonishment. What? He exclaimed eagerly. Now, there are three exclamation marks there. Those are Wilkie Collins's three exclamation marks. Not mine, nor a Penguin editor of latter days. Those are Wilkie Collins's, and you won't often find even anywhere else in his earth three exclamation marks in a row, which are just as much banned in Victorian fiction as they would be now, but there they are. And when you see them, surely you know something is happening. Fancy my wife after a bad illness with a touch of something wrong in her head, and there is Anne Catherick for you, answered Sir Percival. Are they related to each other? Not a bit of it. And yet, so like. There's a bit of Poirot in there too, I'm afraid, sorry. (laughs) Yes, so like. What are you, what are you, I get confused between the two. What are you laughing about? There was no answer and no sound of any kind. Oh, yes, I just shouldn't have learned, because of course Count Fosco laughs without making a noise. The Count was laughing in his smooth, silent, internal way. So at this very minute, Fosco's had an idea, hasn't he? At this very minute, the creaking chair is the moment of inspiration. Um, Spoiler alert, he will engineer a swap between Laura and Anne. And Anne is sickly, you see, and Anne's dying of some, doesn't matter what, illness. and TB, it's always TB. And so he'll do a swap. And then Sir Percival, when Anne, as Laura, dies, Sir Percival will inherit all Laura's money. What's going to happen to Laura? Don't worry. They shove her in an asylum, okay? I mean, do worry. That's not a good fate. (laughs) But they manage to get rid of her without killing her, you see. And he's going to get all the money. In fact... Uh, there's another little plot curlicue, which I might as well give away while I'm giving away everything else here, which is when uh, Fosco says, are they related to each other? Not a bit of it. Of course they are. Of course they are. Why do they look so alike? Well, in fact, Anne is the illegitimate half-sister of Laura. We find out much, much later on. So again, the moment when you see or hear the traces of a plot, even if you can't know, however clever you are, even if you foresee the swap business, you can't see or foresee everything that is going to happen. And in this case, of course, the plot involves a plotter. This is not always the case. The plotter, the author is always a plotter, but sometimes the author has help. And sometimes the author has help of a character who plots um, and especially who villainously plots, of course. And in that the case here, that is Count Fosco. Now, if you were unfortunate enough to be studying for a BA in English literature in my department at UCL, I would be obliged in such a le- lecture to take you through an arid digression on... Uh, what is called narratology, a word also itself invented only in the 1970s. And I'm going to spare you that because narratology, and there are books and books of it in my department's uh, library, um, although it's full of useful technical terms, it is a notoriously dry uh, literary specialism. Because um, narratology is all about the patterns of narrative separate from any of their actual literary qualities. Um, So it very often takes away from literary works everything that makes them enjoyable to read. However, narratologists do have some things to say about plot and maybe, and here's a sample, it's just just two sentences and if you imagine books and books of this stuff, you can see why I'm not going to take you through too much of it. But there is something interesting here. This is from a standard handbook of narratology. Um, If one conceives of plot as a structuration, then it traces the thoughts of readers as they ponder the reasons for events and the motivations of characters, and consider the consequences of actions in their quest to make sense of the narrative as a whole. In this conceptualization, plot spans the time through which the narrative unfolds. Well, you can only read so much of this sort of thing, but um, there is, I think, something quite useful and important here, which is the idea that plot... Um, unlike narrative, which is a much more general term, plot involves the engagement of the reader's curiosity. And I think implicitly, actually, the reader's perplexity. Why? So, plot is the incitement for the reader to think, why am I being told this? Um, and plot is, is rather rarely discussed in literary criticism, it has a rather low reputation. Um, something we might enjoy about a novel or a film or a TV drama, but somehow something which appeals to our, our lowest narrative appetites. And that's actually always been the case. Critics have looked down on plot for a long, long time. When Wilkie Collins led that fashion for thrillers in the 1860s and 1870s, disapproving critics coined a disapproving name for the new kind of fiction that he was leading. They called, it, they called them sensation novels. Um, and that term first started being used in the 1860s exactly in response to The Woman in White and other paler imitators. The Woman in White was a massive bestseller. Um, and uh, perhaps... Perhaps the best-selling novel of the 19th century made Collins a reasonably wealthy man um, and and yet was, if not deplored, at least condescended to by lots of critics. Here, Collins' contemporary and rival Anthony Trollope uh, comments on this new type of fiction. There are sensational nov- novels and anti-sensational. Sensational novelists and anti-sensational. Sensational readers and anti-sensational. The novelists who are considered by an- considered to be anti-sensational are generally called realistic. They're the better ones, of course. I am realistic. My friend Wilkie Collins, whenever writers say my friend X, you want to... Worry a little bit, don't you? My friend, Wilkie Collins is generally supposed to be sensational. The readers who prefer the one are supposed to take delight in the elucidation of character. Those who hold by the other are charmed by the continuation and gradual development of a plot. And that sort of distinction has, you'll find it recurring over and over again in criticism. Um, writers, critics like, if you look at E. M. Forster's. Um, aspects of the novel for instance exactly the same there are character novels and those are deep and fascinating and they're written by Virginia Woolf and Marcel Proust and then there are plot novels which keep us hungry for more but in fact are written by a lower kind of talent plot is inherently sensational and you can see what Trollope meant when you look at Collins because it's not just the subject matter bigamy as i've said but also murder attempted murder embezzlement adultery these are the this is the sort of stuff with which collins worked it was also collins's use of narrative form he specialized in the exploitation of serialization to excite his readers his art was to leave the reader at the end of each week's episode hungry to no more he specialised in weekly serialisations and I said the woman in white appeared first of all in the weekly journal all the year round um, which was edited or as Dickens grandly said it on the masthead conducted by Mr Charles Dickens and the essential, the lead item was always a serialised novel and the aim of the instalment was very simple It was to get the reader to buy the next issue of all the year round. Um, And it is surely from this that Jed Mercurio Mercurio learned his art. Every single one of those four-part, six-part, whatever they are, thrillers, whether they're in sequence or are standalone ones, on usually now, oddly enough, their slot is nine o'clock on a Sunday night, usually on BBC or ITV, has learnt its serial art really from Wilkie Collins, um, or from him in particular. Here is uh, uh, the end of the very first uh, instalment of The Woman in White, which appeared on the 26th of November, 1859. And what's happened is that uh, the story story's being told by a young drawing master called Walter Hartwright. He has got himself his first proper job as a drawing master in distant Cumberland at a place called Limeridge. He's never been there before, where he's going to teach two young ladies to draw. He's going to fall in love with them, one of them, of course. Not both of them, one of them. And um, on his last night in London... He visits his mother and sister who live in Hampstead. And after a pleasant evening, very late at night, he walks back from Hampstead, then a village outside London, into central London. And uh, somewhere at a junction of four roads, he is stopped by a mysterious young woman dressed entirely in white. It's one in the morning. The site of their meeting is much debated. I assert here and now for the record it is the Swiss cottage gyratory system. <laughs> and there's actually a plaque further up the Finchley Road wrongly identifying another junction as the site. But if you read, as I encourage you to, the first part of the woman and white carefully, you'll see it's definitely Swiss cottage. Um, there is no Swiss cottage there at this time, needless to say. And the woman asks him for help. Uh, She's completely unfamiliar with where she is. She wants to go into London. And mysteriously, she mentions that she comes from Cumberland and she mentions the very place, Limeridge, where Walter is going to be travelling the next day. Before he has any chance to work any of this out or find out more from her, there's a cab. He finds her a cab, which is travelling back to... Uh, the Mews, where it's based on Tottenham Court Road. And she gets in it and he pays the cab and it goes off. And he, Walter walks down the side of the road and it's, he's going through St John's Wood, I think now, as bosky then as now. And he's concealed by the trees at the side of the road. And thus concealed, he sees a policeman. And then shortly afterwards, the other side of the road... A, 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 an open carriage with two agitated men in it, who pull up by the policeman, and he hears them talking, and they question the policeman about whether he's seen a woman in white. The policeman says no. what if you do, here's my card. The policeman looked at the card that was handed down to him. Why are we to stop her, sir? What has she done? Done? She has escaped from my asylum. Don't forget, a woman in white. Drive on. When Dickens, who was editing the journal, saw this first instalment from his friend, uh, Wilkie Collins, he congratulated. He must have said something like, Nice, Wilkie. We've got them. And so he did. He had them, you will not be surprised to know, hooked, that ultimate line from a Victorian sensation novel, She has escaped from my asylum. (laughs) Of course, they wanted to read more. They had to. The reader was left itching to buy the next issue, just as we are—at least Jed hopes so—made to itch to watch the next episode of *Line of Duty*. Um, and thus, that you know, that crucial tactical decision. I'd love to be in on it. Which. Wilkie Collins didn't have the choice over whether with a a multi-part TV thriller they make it all available on iPlayer so you can gorge yourself or not. So much better, isn't it, if you have to wait, if you have to wait for the next episode. Some of Collins's perplexity, curiosity-generating closures were more sensational than others, and I, I thought I'd give you one more. Here is, um, here is one from later in the novel. What's happened here is uh, Laura marries Sir Percival. I mentioned at the beginning they get married because she feels obliged to because her late father left it in her, his will that he wanted her to marry him. So she does and Walter despairs and goes off to the Honduras. And then he comes back later and hears... That Laura has died and he's absolutely desolate. And he makes a sort of tragic pilgrimage to her grave in Limeridge Churchyard up in Cumberland. And when he goes there, he encounters two women in the churchyard. One of them is veiled. But the veiled woman, had possession of me, body and soul. She stopped on one side of the grave. We stood face to face with the tombstone between us. She was close to the inscription on the side of the pedestal. Her gown touched the black letters. The voice came nearer and rose and rose more passionately still. Hide your face. Don't look at her. Oh, for God's sake, spare him. The woman lifted her veil. Sacred to the memory of Laura Lady Glide. Laura... Lady Glyde was standing by the inscription and was looking at me over the grave. Uh, we all we know by now the perhaps well-worn convention: wire when a character uh, we thought was dead turns out not to be. But Victorian readers were less used to it and were presumably thunderstruck by this lifting of the veil. But of course. They had to wait another week to find out how this could be. Um, But they could wait confident that Collins had it all planned out, that he or she was working through what was already intricately designed. And here is Charles Dickens just a year later when... All uh, the woman in white was succeeded by Great Expectations in all the year round, and you've got to admit, pretty classy stuff they had in it. Um, talking about how incredibly demanding and difficult it is, to, or it was, to get the overall plot to fit also within the rhythm of jolts and suspensions of a weekly serial. He's talking about great expectations. And great expectations, the book, is is in three parts, the three stages of Pip's expectations. It's a pity that the third portion cannot be read all at once because its purpose would be much more apparent. And the pity is the greater because the general turn and tone of the working out and winding up will be away from all such things as they conventionally go. But what must be, must be. As to the planning out from week to week, nobody can imagine what the difficulty is without trying. But as in all such cases, when it is overcome, the pleasure is proportionate. Two months more will see me through it, I trust. All the iron is in the fire, and I have only to beat it out. Dickens preferred the monthly form of serialisation, which gave him more room to elaborate the patterns of plot. Um, and yet wrote a couple of his greatest novels, Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations, in this this weekly form. So having looked at these examples, maybe we can hazard a definition of what plot is as distinct from story or narrative. And I'd suggest that what a plot is is a concealed design. Maybe in a way that doesn't quite do it justice because it has to be a concealed design whose shape we might just about detect. So there's a paradox about a plot. It's concealed, but we must see the signs of concealment. Not all novels, as I said, have plots. Um, I'd suggest by my definition, only one novel by Jane Austen has a plot, which is Jane Austen's Emma. The plot doesn't actually directly involve the heroine. It involves two subsidiary characters, Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill. Here is the foolish, good-hearted Miss Bates explaining why her niece... Jane Fairfax has unexpectedly announced that she's coming to stay with them in the Surrey village of Highbury. And the clues in Miss Bates's um, um, rambling monologues um, are very much sort of for, in the same sort of convention that you get in uh, whodunits, including Agatha Christie ones. Whenever there's a garrulous servant, say, who talks too much about boring things, and everybody ignores it. You know you should be listening. Yeah. Whenever anybody says, funny, I I thought I'd put the rake away, but uh, it's still out in the garden. I must have forgotten. Do your alarm bells go, yes? Well, so too with Miss Bates. "'Jane caught a bad cold, poor thing, "'so long ago as the 7th of November, "'as I'm going to read to you,' she's reading from a letter, "'and has never been well since. "'A long time, is it not, for a cold to hang upon her? "'She never mentioned it before.' because she would not alarm us, just like her, so considerate. But, however, she is so far from well that her kind friends, the Campbells, think that she'd better come home and try an air that always agrees with her. And they've no doubt that three or four months at Highbury will entirely cure her. And it's certainly a great deal better that she should come here than go to Ireland if she is unwell. Nobody could nurse her as we should do. The Campbells are her adoptive family. Um, It is now the first week in January, quite a long time to have a cold, Um, even though, of course, Jane Fairfax is a character who, whenever she feels a bit grim about life, which is quite often, does tend to get ill. Um, But Miss Bates is actually unknowingly supplying us with clues uh, about what's really going on, though an unknowing reader will not, and I think a first-time reader, is unlikely to be able to pick up the clues. Spoiler alert, Jane Fairfax has met Frank Churchill, who Emma thinks of as a possible future spouse for herself, though she's never met him, so presumptuous is she, at Weymouth. They have fallen in love. They have contracted a secret engagement. How can they possibly meet? They have a connection, a mutual connection with this Surrey village. Jane Fairfax's aunt lives there. Frank Churchill's father lives there. Jane says, I tell you what, I won't go to Ireland with my adoptive family. I'll say, I've got a cold. And then a few days later, you can turn up saying you're there to visit your father. How about that? Yes. That's what's really going on. But we can't possibly know, can we? Unless we really are Poirot-like in our attention to what Miss Bates is saying. Soon, Jane does arrive. Emma, who has always been irked by Jane Fairfax because she's so perfect, Um, she's so good at the piano and all that, and she's also irked by her reticence. Um, and she tries to get something interesting out of her about Weymouth. The like reserve prevailed on other topics. She and Mr Frank Churchill had been at Weymouth at the same time. It was known that they were a little acquainted, but not a syllable of real information could Emma procure as to what he truly was. Was he handsome? She believed he was reckoned a fine young man. Was he agreeable? He was generally thought so. Did he appear a sensible young man, a young man of information? At a watering place or in a common London acquaintance, it was difficult to decide on such points. Manners were all that could be safely judged of under a much longer knowledge than they had yet had of Mr Churchill. She believed everybody found his manners pleasing. Emma could not forgive her. We see, we are made to see through Emma's eyes, here as in most of the novel, Emma is exasperated, but she would have done better, wouldn't she, to have been suspicious. Why will she tell her nothing? Soon, Frank Churchill turns up. He goes to see his father, Mr Weston, and on his very first day, who do they first visit in the village? Emma. Of course, cementing Emma's confidence that she is... The Queen of the village. A reasonable visit paid. Mr. Weston began to move. He must be going. He had business at the Crown about his hay and a great many errands for Mrs. Weston at Ford's. But he need not hurry anybody else. His son, too well-bred to hear the hint, rose immediately also saying... As you're going further on business, sir, I will take the opportunity of paying a visit which must be paid some day or other, and therefore may as well be paid now. I have the honour of being acquainted with a neighbour of yours, turning to Emma, a lady residing in or near Highbury, a family of the name of Fairfax. I shall have no difficulty, I suppose, in finding the house. Though Fairfax, I believe, is not the proper name. I should rather say, oh, Barnes or Bates. Do you know any family of that name? To be sure we do, cried his father. Mrs Bates, we passed her house. I saw Miss Bates at the window. True, true, you're acquainted with Miss Fairfax. I remember you knew her at Weymouth, a fine girl she is. Call upon her by all means. Oh, if you insist. (laughs) Frank Churchill is a plotter and an anatomist of human nature. He knows already uh, about his father, Mr. Weston, one of his characteristics is he always says, oh no, let's do it now. If we are going to do it, let's do it now. Go and see how now. It's a brilliant little twist of what is called free indirect style in this passage. In that phrase, too well-bred to hear the hint. His son, too well-bred to hear the hint. Um, you might think for a moment, that's Jane Austen's comment. But in fact, of course, it's not. It's Emma's thought. She thinks that he is being particularly polite in not hearing his father's hint about how he could stay longer with Emma if he wants. Um, Nothing of the kind. His real mission has nothing to do with Emma. He wants to get to see Jane Fairfax ASAP. Of course he does. But Emma's consciousness is the magnet to which everything in this narrative bends. Her thought is entirely wrong. So here are the signs of a buried design, a buried design uh, that involves planting clues just as much as an Agatha Christie novel involves planting clues. And even though we're unlikely to be able to detect most of those on a first reading, one of the reasons that Emma is such a, clever novel is it's a novel perhaps the first novel written in English that has to be read twice in order to understand it Um, and clues here's a here's a a more recent example uh, another novel with a puzzle title like Agatha Christie's of how uh, a a literary novelist uh, who likes a plot in McEwan will plant clues that perhaps we will only recognise afterwards. This is from his Booker prize winning novel, uh, Amsterdam. Um, And it involves a friendship which turns into an enmity between Clive Lindley and Vernon Halliday. They're old friends and they're united in part by the fact they were both once lovers of a woman called Molly Lane at whose funeral they meet again at the beginning of the novel. Clive is an esteemed composer of classical music. Vernon is the editor of a daily newspaper. Here's Vernon at his morning editorial conference hearing ideas about stories from his his features editor, Lettuce began to describe an investigative piece she'd commissioned on a medical scandal in Holland. Apparently there are doctors exploiting the euthanasia laws to... Vernon interrupted her. I want to run the Siamese twin story in Friday's paper. There were groans, but who was going to object first? Lettice, we don't even have a picture. Incidental detail? If you're very attentive, you might be thinking, Holland... I'm wondering still why this novel's called Amsterdam. Amsterdam doesn't crop up until about 130 pages into this really quite short book. Later in the novel, another editorial conference. This time, it's a big event because Vernon's newspaper has an exclusive story about a sexual scandal involving the foreign secretary. The literary editor, who'd never before been in early enough to attend a morning conference, gave a somnolent account of a novel about food, which sounded so pretentious that Vernon had to cut him off. From arts, there was a funding crisis, and lettuce O'Hara in Features was at last ready to run her piece on the Dutch medical scandal, and also, to honour the occasion, was offering a feature on how industrial pollution was t- turning male fish into females. We might be so distracted by the joke that Ian McEwan's inserted about somnolent and sleep-inducing literary editors um, that we might miss that little thing about Holland again. But eventually we can't miss it. Here in the last section of the novel, Clive and Vernon have fallen out with a vengeance. Now they despise each other. We're all set up for the novelist's plot to reveal itself. Clive is reading Vernon's newspaper and notices the plot hook, unsavoury, goings-on in Holland. The world was its usual mess. Fish were changing sex. British table tennis had lost its way. And in Holland... Some unsavoury types with medical degrees were offering a legal service to eliminate your inconvenient elderly parent. How interesting. All one needed was the aged parent's signature in duplicate and several thousand dollars. Clive notices this report and makes a plot out of it. And then we get to see the point of the novel's teasing title. Both men spoiler alert, will arrange for each other's voluntary euthanasia. It's a double murder, and the murderers murder each other. They will both travel to Amsterdam, but neither will come back alive. And you recognise the whole thing is inevitable, their very friendship, based a lot on envy and rivalry, was doomed to this murderous symmetry. How neat, how comic, how carefully plotted. So uh, uh, the clues are there. I can't remember if I noticed them the first time, but eventually we all notice what Amsterdam means. So clues are often little flourishes, actually, that the the plot adept uh, novelist uses. Two little examples I'll just pause on briefly uh, before I ruin the mystery of Edwin Drood for Clare. Here is one from uh, the great plotter of the Victorian novel, Charles Dickens. It's from the opening instalment of Bleak House and it's Lady Dedlock on her Lincolnshire estate. And... Uh, looking out of the window, Um, drip, drip, drip. On Sundays, the little church in the park is mouldy. The oaken pulpit breaks out into a cold sweat and there is a general smell and taste as of the ancient deadlocks in their graves. My Lady Deadlock, who is childless... Looking out in the early twilight from her boudoir at a keeper's lodge and seeing the light of a fire upon the lattice panes and smoke rising from the chimney and a child chased by a woman running out into the rain to meet the shining figure of a wrapped up man coming through the gate has been put quite out of temper. My Lady Dedlock says she has been bored to death. Remember Gillian Armstrong being bored to death. Um... It's a, a, a very sly moment from Dickens, superbly misleading. In this most elaborately plotted and very long novel, right at the beginning of it, here he is, my lady Dedlock. He loves a parenthesis, Dickens, who is childless. Spoiler alert, she's not. Spoiler alert, the heroine of the novel, Esther Summerson is her child. Lady Dedlock thought she was dead, but she's not. Lady Dedlock has a child and a whole scandalous prehistory which will be revealed in the course of the novel. Though in March 1852, it would have been a Poirot-like literary critic indeed who detected a something like a flourish of statement paradoxical statement in that parenthesis a kind of dare to the reader to see through what uh, Dickens was doing now I'm going to go to the end and to the mystery of Edwin Drood um, because that's how Dickens ended his career he ended his career with a novel which is a kind of continuing puzzle for TV adapters and for academics because Dickens died exactly halfway through this novel. Its first six instalments of a Plan 12 were completed and it's a mystery as its title announces. We know that John Jasper, the choirmaster at Cloisterham Cathedral is a secret opium addict. We know He's secretly obsessed sorry, he's not secretly, but he's amorously, sexually obsessed, with Rosa Bud, who is engaged to his own nephew, Edwin Drood. We know John Jasper has dark schemes. What are they? Here, the kindly and intelligent Reverend Septimus Chris Sparkle comes upon Jasper asleep on his sofa. long afterwards. He had cause to remember how Jasper sprang from the couch in a delirious state between sleeping and waking and crying out, what is the matter? Who did it? Long afterwards, the phrase points forward to a narrative future that Dickens knew, that Dickens foresaw, but we never get there. We would have got there if he'd lived. Who did it? Who did what? We're given encouragement To think it might be a murder. Here, in the 12th episode, Jasper is being given a tour of the cathedral at night by the drunken stonemason, Durdles, who knows the interior of his labyrinthine place better than any other person. Where that there mound by the yard gate, Mr Jasper? I see it. What is it? Lime. Mr. Jasper stops and waits for him to come up, for he lags behind. What you call quick climb? Aye, says Durdles. Quick enough to eat your boots with a little handy stirring, quick enough to eat your bones. Murders, bodies, what? There is the number plan that Dickens left behind for us to be intrigued by. His note to himself for this very episode lay the ground for the murder to come out at last, seems pretty clear, doesn't it? And yet, the illustration to the monthly instalment has clues which seem also to lead in other directions. In particular, down at the bottom, you see Edwin Drew disappears in the course of the novel and you see at the bottom a man with a lantern shining upon a figure revealed When Edwin Drew disappears, is it because he's murdered or something else? And I end just with this final clue to show Claire here that actually I'm not giving away the ending because we don't really know what the ending was and there are other kinds of clues in the novel. So electric with plot sensitivity is it. Here... In the first first instalment, Dickens is rather innocently describing Miss Twinkleton, the head of the small private school for young ladies in Cloisterham, where Rosa Bud's still a pupil. And Miss Twinkleton is a solemn old maid by day, but actually a scandal loving gossip, once all the young ladies have been sent to bed and she can chat with her crony Mrs Tisha. As In some cases of drunkenness and others of animal magnetism, there are two states of consciousness which never clash, but each of which pursues its separate course as though it were continuous instead of broken. Thus, if I hide my watch when I'm drunk, I must be drunk again before I can remember where. So Miss Twinkleton has two distinct and separate phases of being. Why is Dickens... Reaching for this analogy, which requires a great long footnote in the Penguin edition about animal magnetism, which is what they call mesmerism or being in a hypnotic state. Plot sometimes remembers other plots and just uh, uh, a year and a half earlier, Wilkie Collins's novel, The Moonstone, had appeared in Dickens's All the Year Round. And it's about the... Theft of a a Fabulously Valuable Diamond. Spoiler alert, the culprit is the novel's hero, Franklin Blake, who steals the diamond in a hypnotic state induced by the inadvertent consumption of opium. John Jasper's an opium addict. Was Dickens offering a plot hook to his first readers? John Jasper thinks that he's murdered, Edwin Drood, but maybe he hasn't. Maybe he thought he did because he was in an opium-induced trance. Anyway, I don't know, possibly. The mystery of Edwin Drood, however, provides final and, I think, uh, compelling evidence for that power of plot in fiction. Its plot existed fully formed In the author's head, of that we can be certain. The clues, the hooks, all must be there. Remember, Dickens Dickens commanded himself, lay the ground for the murder in that bit from the uh, number plan that I looked at. Lay the ground. Yes, he laid the ground. But even the cleverest commentators can't be sure where the plot leads. No wonder it's got such power. Thank you.